0: Welcome to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And I'm Andrew Moon. And today on the show... Space Force One, ready for launch. Good luck, spaceman. Thank you, sir. I don't think I want to go anymore. Too late for that. T-minus 45 seconds. I'm getting out. Oh, no, no, don't get out.
1: I'm leaving too.
0: Don't do that. You guys are going to have a great trip. Really wonderful time. Enjoy. You're going
2: to love the moon.
0: If you found yourself locked up at home last year during COVID, you might have seen a comedy series that Netflix released called Space Force. Space Force. The series profiles the establishment of Space Force, a branch of the US military, tasked with enforcing law and order in space and getting US boots back on the moon. T minus 30 seconds. How do you get the seatbelt open? Do not take off your
2: seatbelt.
1: I forgot about my bird.
2: Oh my god, I'll feed your bird. What's your bird's name? I'll take care of it.
0: They're all gonna die.
1: Oh no, here she is.
2: She took the goddamn bird with her. Oh, what? Stop the rocket! Abortion! No, not possible!
0: Mark, an astronaut has the right to hold any. Ja, ja, ja,
2: ja, ja. Go for launch!
0: Steve Carell's character, General Mark Ned, is in charge of the team, and throughout the series, he's managing this underlying battle between the US and China and being the first to get back to the moon and establish a permanent base. Coming up on
1: bearing separation.
2: Approaching Max Q.
1: Side booster shutdown and separation.
0: We have exited Earth's orbit and
1: reached trajectory. Next stop, the moon.
0: While the US does make it back to the lunar surface, they decide to land near a base that China has already established and which the country sees almost like an act of war. And China retaliates by running over a US flag that was there since the original moon landing.
2: desecrating a sacred object. Agreed, they just trampled over the American Quran.
0: Isn't that breaking a US law, even on the moon? The military generals then try to figure out the next steps, and run into a rather hard time deciding what they can and can't legally
2: do in space. US law applies 200 miles from a US flag. 200 miles from the coastline, now is the moon? 200 miles away it is not and running over a flag is not illegal
0: you're not a lawyer Nair. there i'm a corporate lawyer they could argue that we abandoned that flag when we left the moon that would make it trash take that back so what are the rules on the moon who owns the resources and land that exists there and how do we balance the growing commercial interest in space with our existing legal parameters that's coming up on this episode of moonshot after a quick word from our sponsor Back in 1966, at the height of the space race, the United Nations realised the need for laws to govern the peaceful use of space. While there were already satellites in orbit, the ambitions of the USA and Russia were clearly focused on the moon, and both nations were really concerned about the other one getting the upper hand, and the solution that the United Nations came up with was the Outer
1: Space Treaty. The Space Treaty was signed in January of 1967 and came into force in October of that same year, and it outlines a number of key principles designed for the peaceful exploration and use of space. But how did such an agreement come to be when the US and Russia were in the midst of a Cold War?
3: Yeah, so we actually have five core space treaties, all of which were negotiated in the space of about 11 or 12 years, which is... Lightning speed for international law. You never get that many treaties in such a short period of time.
1: This is Cassandra Steer. She's a senior lecturer at the Australian National University's College of Law and a mission specialist for ANU's Institute of Space.
3: And like you said, it was in the height of the Cold War, so you had a massive competition between these two superpowers. And yet they sat down around the negotiating table together and agreed on these treaties. And the key one is the Outer Space Treaty, which is you want to think of it like the constitution for space. So it's got very general principles. It's not a treaty that um, regulates behavior in a detailed or nitty-gritty way. Um, The way that our constitution or any constitution operates is to set down your organizational principles and your values. Uh, and how you're going to govern yourself. And then you set up other laws that are more detailed, like statutes, which can be changed over time to deal with specific technologies or behaviour or when we change our, our values and our issues in society. But the constitution remains a stable document. And that's how you want to see the Outer Space Treaty and, in fact, the other four core space treaties as well. And so what the US and the Soviets had already been doing um, Space was militarized from the get go. It was all about having the higher ground, the ability to observe each other, the ability to observe each other's nuclear programs in particular. And they'd also been testing weapons in space. They'd been using electromagnetic pulses, they'd been using nuclear explosions. Um, by 1967, we already had a few satellites in space that were there for broadcasting or telecommunication purposes. And when they when they tested these kind of weapons, they realized both countries realized very quickly you cannot control the impacts of these weapons. So the U.S. one very famous example is um, Starfish Prime in 1962. Great name. Um, it was a nuclear explosion, and it uh, it impacted satellites that were broadcasting from California across to Australia, so British satellites, US satellites. And they realised, well, there's no point in in these kinds of weapons in space because it's impacting us and our allies. We can't contain their effects. What we need to do then quickly is set down some rules of agreement between us, between the two superpowers to ensure that, and both countries thought that what they were doing was restricting the other even though they were restricting themselves as well. So it was all about making sure the other party didn't get the high ground.
0: The Outer Space Treaty was really focused on the major players, the US and Russia. But other nations were also interested in making sure that space didn't become the next battleground. After all, many other nations still had their own ambitions for space. They just weren't ready to really do anything about it. And the very first article in the treaty specifically speaks to this ideal – saying the exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interest of all countries, irrespective of their degree of economic or scientific development, and shall be the province of all mankind.
3: And very quickly, you had other supporters like um, the other kind of emerging post-World War, post-Second World War big players like France and Germany, um, Canada... Uh, uh, Japan, so there are other countries who saw the importance of this treaty. So it wasn't a bilateral agreement, it was a multilateral treaty, which is really important for its impact um, and its lasting impact as well. So that's why we see it as a constitution. And that's why in these really politically tense times, we actually came out with these really important principle documents. So we've also got the registration convention, which says you have to register every launch, both in a national registry and in an international one so that we can all track what's going on. We've got the um, Return and Rescue Agreement, which is all about helping astronauts in space because they are envoys of humankind. They're these amazing, super-trained Um, people who are putting themselves in the face of risk, we need to look after them. We also need to return bits of satellite or space station if they land somewhere. So it was all of these cooperation principles, right? And then the Liability Convention, which talks about who should pay up if there's an accident, which has never actually been triggered or used. But we put in place these really key principles that actually were about cooperation. The Outer Space Treaty also says So you can't have nuclear weapons in space. You can't use space for military purposes. Space is the province of all mankind. So it's a problematic term. I've actually written a piece about the province of all humankind, um, which is a feminist analysis of space law. Why, Why is it actually not all humankind who has access to space? But that's a bit by the by. The intention was that it would be accessible to all states, to all countries, regardless of their economic development. So there's a right of freedom, there's a right of access to space and a freedom of use of space. And so therefore, not only cooperation, but this idea that space is a commons. Um, So we don't use the word commons, but the fact that it's the province of all mankind or all all humankind is really important. In the beginning of 2020, under a presidential uh, executive order, Trump stated that the US does not consider space to be a global commons. And this is problematic and it was a little bit shocking maybe it wasn't shocking because it was penned by trump but it's a shocking statement to have said that this this domain that that under the under the um the political agreement of the us in the 1960s as one of the two leading powers and for decades since every single piece of national legislation and attempt for international space governance has referred back to the outer space treaty and back to these principles all of a sudden, they're saying space is not a global commons, and and that that's kind of shaken the foundations a bit because we know this race to the moon is on. We know that there are some grey areas around what commercial activities are or are not lawful under international space law. But to say it's not a global commons is really to say we don't care about the right of access or right of use of, use of other countries. We're just gonna we're just gonna have the first. To get there is going to claim um, claim the right of access and claim claim the right of use and claim property, um, and that that's that's shaken their foundations a little bit of this notion of cooperation and shared shared uh, resource shared domain shared commons.
1: Donald Trump, perhaps on many fronts, is challenging norms of um, national leadership and international leadership and diplomacy. But where is the where does that leave the outer space treaty now, um, in terms of if Donald Trump's challenged this idea of the global commons, how have other um, nation states reacted to that? Um, and 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 w- what would your assessment be of the of the future of a, a kind of a global commons treaty and document like this?
3: So the the Outer Space Treaty is still really important and relevant. Um, in two thousand seventeen, we were celebrating its fiftieth anniversary, and the question kept coming up, like at every single kind of global event, celebrating its 50th anniversary, the question came up, is it still relevant? Do we need to renegotiate it? Do we need to replace it? Um, And my answer has always been and remains, no, it's an an incredibly strong, relevant document. Like I said, it's like a constitution. So it sets down general principles and those don't change over time. If we were to open that up and try to renegotiate one small aspect of it, we would unravel all of the other things that have kept space what it is, which is a shared and, and still peaceful domain um, so the, the term global commons isn't in the treaty. So they actually can make that statement without challenging the terms of the treaty. Um, it challenges the spirit of the treaty and that might sound a bit kind of, um, uh, eclectic or, 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 um, uh, that's the word I'm looking for, <laughs> eclectic or, you know, aspirational, um, but that's actually a notion in international law that when you've signed a treaty, you cannot do anything that is against the object and purpose of the treaty or the spirit of the treaty. Um, if you do so, you're actually breaching it, even if you can't find a particular term, black letter term, that has been breached. You can't act against the object and purpose of it. So we could argue whether making the statement that space is not a global commons is doing that. But I don't think any any state is willing to um, enter that fight Um a better response, and that has been the response around the world, is to just go steer the other course and start to use the term global commons explicitly in, in um uh, in public policy or in uh, in public comment um, space agencies are using that term some some commercial companies are using that term because even though the competition is commercial even though some companies particularly US companies might benef- benefit by the u.s taking the stance that well if we land there first we'll have right of access we'll have right to this property rights um, at the same time if you say it's not a global Commons you might be locking yourself out of other future opportunities so um, Global commons has been a term that is actually being reiterated by others. And then you also have um, more uh, proactive attempts by certain countries, the UK, for instance, to really start talking about responsible behaviour in space. Because there's kind of no point debating whether or not it's a commons. What we really want to look at is how are we behaving in space? Are we all being responsible actors? Um, Are we all living up to the fact that everyone does have a right of access, that everyone should be sharing in the benefits of space? Uh, or not. Like those are the things we should be focusing on. And so, um, the UK has come out with um, some statements recently. We have a UN body that's called the Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space copious. It was under their auspices that all these space treaties were negotiated, and um, that last year uh, they adopted 21 non-binding guidelines on the long-term sustainability of outer space. So, that the pushback has actually been a positive rather than a negative, which I think is the best way to respond to that kind of statement and also possibly the best way to respond to Trump in general.
0: And we'll be back with more Moonshot in a moment. With the rise of private companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin looking to send humans towards deep space and potentially establish bases on the moon and beyond, it raises some interesting questions around how we balance the commercial ambition of private enterprise in space with the desire from nations to have space be for the benefit of all humanity. After all, our space treaties were developed at a time when only countries, were the ones who could afford to be in the space race. So how do we actually balance that ambition with our desire to have space be for everyone?
2: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I think it's one of the ones that it's really tricky that people don't appreciate is, is trying to find that right balance.
0: This is Brad Tucker, an astrophysicist at the Australian National University's Mount Stromlo Observatory in Canberra.
2: The laws and treaties kind of govern uh, space, but they kind of only govern countries; and do they don't necessarily govern all the govern all the private companies, and even the laws behind that are a little bit lagging. So, you know, it's a it's a loaded topic that a lot of people are trying to get a grapple with. And I think that's, you know, if it's going to work, in my opinion, I think you kind of need to have a reevaluation of how space is governed beyond just UN treaties and the Outer Space Law treaties, where you kind of have more boards and, and, you know, groups that kind of operate and regulate it regularly. You know, treaties aren't meant to be updated every year, right? You know, that, that, that's not a treaty. It's supposed to be there and, and done, but technology is going to keep evolving. So hopefully you can get buy-in from the private companies as well as the countries to say, all right, well, here's what we can all agree to, just as we've done with radio frequency bands um, and those sorts of things and just as the same thing with we've seen with antarctica and even international waters that you kind of get over oversight bodies that represent the interests of both the companies and the countries to find that equal balance because they're all going to have their own different reasons for for different valid per reasons as well different purposes that you can't just say all right well it's only private companies or it's only countries or it's only these countries or those companies you want everyone to have an opportunity of it and also you you don't want to just benefit the big players you don't want to just say okay it's up to the us and china and russia and india to decide what happens you know what happens to the smaller countries and the medium company countries growing their space programs you don't want to lock them out of the future um, when the reason these treaties and the rules are set up so everyone can benefit. It you don't want the, that exact thing to be the thing that works against them.
0: How does the the how do the existing treaties um, treat private enterprises that are looking to monetize space and are looking to establish their own presences in space or looking to mine resources?
3: Yeah, so so three of the treaties do actually speak to that a little bit. The Outer Space Treaty did envisage commercial activity. I just don't think they envisaged the extent of it. I mean, how could you envisage what the 21st century looked like technology-wise and the fact that commercial entities are the ones with, in fact, the financial wherewithal when countries don't have that much money? Um, But they did envisage it a little bit. So the Outer Space Treaty in particular says under Article 6 that countries, states, are responsible for all activities in space that take place under their jurisdiction, whether they're governmental or non-governmental. So what that means is... If a commercial activity takes place in space, it's the country who is where the company is registered or where they launched from that's responsible if something goes wrong. And what that forces countries then to do is to put in place national legislation and say, right, well, then you need to have licenses and permits from us. You need to have insurance because if we're responsible, we want to make sure we know what's going on. So it did envisage commercial activity and it put the onus back on countries to take care of that, which was also a really smart move. Um, and it was a it was a forward-looking move even if they couldn't envisage just how much commercialization has taken over the space sector it does mean that the entities that can regulate that being the countries the states are forced to do so Um And and what it also means is so sometimes you hear companies saying, well, the Outer Space Treaty says that there's no sovereignty in space, you can't claim ownership of space, but that only applies to countries and we're a company, so the treaty doesn't apply to us. That is a complete misunderstanding of how international law works. Um, No activity can take place in space without permission of a country um, because everything falls under their jurisdiction and under their responsibility.
0: A good example of countries having to deal with rogue commercial operators is Swarm. We've mentioned the case on the show before, but to refresh your memory, Swarm is a US company that's been building a constellation of satellites in space for Internet of Things devices. They applied for a license to launch four CubeSats, but it was rejected by the FCC. So rather than fix the issues identified, Swarm went launch shopping. And they ended up getting their satellites launched in India in early 2018, with no questions asked about whether they had permission to do so. But nothing goes into space without being noticed, and the FCC definitely noticed. The whole incident resulted in Swarm receiving a $900,000 US dollar fine.
3: What they did was slap them on the fingers. And I think SWARM was just willing to try it out because the fine didn't matter to them. They could pay it. They could absorb the cost. What they wanted to do was try out, can we actually get away with this or not? And the US said, no, you can't. Everything that happens in space happens under national jurisdiction. Um, and so... You know, again, these are general principles. The Liability Convention also says states are responsible, states will have to pay up, and that's why states have put these laws in place. The other treaty that says something a little bit about commercial activity is the Moon Agreement, which is the fifth core space treaty, and it's the contentious treaty. It only has 18 countries that have signed up. The others have in the hundreds. Um, and as of those 18 countries, not a single one of them is actually a spacefaring country in the sense that not a single one of them can launch satellites, has a launch capacity. Australia has signed that. We're about to become spacefaring. We will have our own launch capacity in the next year. But the thing about that treaty is, it was set up in 1979 with a view to commercial activity. Countries, and most of the countries that negotiated this are non aligned or developing countries who saw What's what's going to happen in space is what we're seeing in terms of access to the high seas, the deep seabed, all these other um, the Antarctic, all these other areas, but not beyond national jurisdiction, where there are fish and oil and resources that companies are interested in, but they're not part of a national um, territory, um, and these other legal regimes have been set up in such a way to make sure that. There is still some sharing in those resources. There's still some regulation. Companies can't just go in and do whatever they want. And they could see the potential for this risk happening in in space and on the moon in particular. So the moon agreement was set up. The key article of that is Article 11, which says all of the signatories are obliged to establish an international regime to regulate essentially mining on the moon or in asteroids' commercial activity at such a time as that technology appears to be um, a, a Possible, and so the question is: Are we at such a time yet, or not? Because Australia has signed that treaty and is obliged to say we're going to we're going to set up an international regime. We're going to have some kind of international body or treaty or regulatory body that makes sure that well, everyone shares in the profits, that it doesn't get overmined. At the same time, Australia has also signed on to these Artemis Accords with the US. So we're one of the eight countries who signed those accords. Those Artemis Accords were set up by NASA, but they were set up on the back of this statement in 2020 where the US has said space is not a global commons. And in the Artemis Accords, it is stated that mining and natural natural resource extraction can and shall happen and is in accordance with the Outer Space Treaty. And that's exactly what's a debate. So now Australia has signed one treaty saying We have to have an international regime and these agreements, which aren't treaties, but they are binding agreements with the U.S. If you want to be part of the Artemis program, you have to agree with us that mining can take place and that it's already allowed under the Outer Space Treaty. So we've put ourselves in a bit of a a unique conundrum. No other country is a party to these two agreements in the world. So we have to figure out what we're going to do about that. I guess the very long answer to your question is that the Outer Space Treaty doesn't regulate that activity because it didn't set out to. It set out to put in place these general principles. What we have to figure out now in the 21st century is how are we going to regulate these new kinds of activities? What kind of body are we going to set up you know, should that be a UN body? I don't think that's going to be successful. Should it be a hybrid body where you have countries plus companies figuring out the rules together? I reckon that would be the best solution, but we have to work that out. And Australia is under great pressure to work that out because of the position we've put ourselves in.
1: It sounds like we are in this real gray area now where we need to sprint to a lot of alignment between nation states and parties and really revise whether it be the outer space treaty or, or other new treaties or to appoint governing bodies where they need to be. Um, is the moon really the focus here, both on not the mining side, but also like people are paying most attention there in terms of how we will parcel up land rights, etc. Or is are we, are we likely to get into a place if we don't resolve this grey area where it really is kind of everything is up for grabs here. Like, the moon might be the closest and more realistic, but is the bleeding edge that nation states just go like, yep, that one's ours. Like, that one's got resources. We're going to claim this entire planet versus even just thinking about land parcels.
3: It's a great question because everything's under pressure, right? Like, even our... Even our understanding of an international rules-based order on Earth is under pressure, and so what does that mean then about a rules-based order in space? <laughs> like, when we're not even in space, what can we really prevent a, a more powerful or financially and technologically um, enabled country from just going ahead and doing what it wants? I don't think we're going to see countries doing whole planet grabs or even asteroid grabs or moon grabs um, because there is actually a commitment to international law. Like, like even what the US is doing, they're still framing it as being in accordance with international law. They've always done that when when it's a bit off topic, but, but it helps to understand perhaps like when they were kidnapping people and taking them to various countries and torturing them in these so-called extraordinary renditions and saying, well, it doesn't fall under US law because they're not in the US territory, therefore we can torture them. Um, in fact, what they said was they never said, therefore we can torture them because they said, of course we agree torture is unlawful under international law. We've all signed a treaty. It's one of the strongest rules of international law. It's just that what we're doing is not torture it's enhanced interrogation. And so a lot of countries do this, right? China with its um, um, island building is saying, no, 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 we're not breaching international law. It's in accordance with international law. Um, The US is now saying, no, no, this is not in breach of the Outer Space Treaty. It's in accordance. So there's a commitment actually to international law continuing to be a governing regime. It's just about how we interpret those rules. And the commitment is no country can claim sovereignty in space. No country can own a planet or own an asteroid. What's happening instead is companies are encouraging countries to say, no, no, this is not a claim of sovereignty. We're merely extracting resources. And because we have put technological uh, effort into that, it goes back, in fact, to um, what's called a Lockean, like the, the philosopher Locke was the basis of Um, terra nullius in australia was the basis of taking over whole parts of the u.s by the colonists when they said we are mixing our toil with the earth we're putting technological effort into it we're constructing buildings and farms and because we're doing something with the earth it becomes ours and that's what they're saying with with extracting natural resources we don't claim ownership of the asteroid or the moon we're just extracting this stuff but because we have done so we're now allowed to sell it for profit that what we've extracted becomes ours, we're doing something new with it. So it's these interpretations. I don't think we're going to risk an unravelling of the Outer Space Treaty. We're not going to see whole planet grabs or or parcel grabs. Um, But but this is why we're under pressure now to figure out, well, what are we going to do about this regime? We We need to think about what these new regimes require. They need new forms of governance. And I really think that hybrid model is the way to go where you have countries, perhaps the UN bodies involved as well, and, and commercial entities coming together and saying, well, what rules do we need to make this work for everyone?
2: Yeah, this is the, this is the issue, right? If, if, if people are already setting up shop, you know, you've already missed the window. And so this is this big pressing thing. There is a very narrow window where um, you can get this to work. And if people are going to be landing back on the moon in five years' time, that, that is the window. By the time people are already setting up stuff, you know, you're know, you not gonna go there, build a house, and then someone come along and say, oh no, that's not your house anymore and you have to move it. You know, you'll know, you be like, mm, no, that is my house, I built it. And we've had obviously these issues on earth in the past. So hopefully we can learn from history a bit and forward think. And I think there's enough people in the community, both private sector, researchers, government, uh, and even military-wise say, look, we, we see these issues, we know these issues. We want to do right by these issues. We just need to to get on with it and hopefully move it in a fast enough pace.
1: I was going to ask, Cassandra. We we talked to, you talked a little bit before about like how mining is really one of the drivers for this kind of. Um sovereignty battle perhaps or um multilateral agreement approach to to kind of landing on the moon and 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 making use there of of that land but if i'm here sitting in my bedroom and i have said you know what i am going to put in my credit card details and i'm going to buy a plot of land on the moon how far away realistically am I from calling that moving truck, putting my putting my belongings in a box and um then getting in the shuttle? How far away am I from realizing my my moon plot or perhaps my Mars plot of land?
3: I think Mars is going to cause us more challenges than the moon. Um you can already sign up. I think there's companies that say, "Pay me a hundred bucks, and I'll and I'll give you this plot of moon." You you have lost your money if you've done so, um, because the Outer Space Treaty says there is no sovereignty in space. And if there's no sovereignty in space, if there's no national sovereignty in space, no individual can claim ownership. Of something that doesn't already have it doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of a of a country it's an area that falls beyond national jurisdiction it would be like you saying i'm going to own this piece of the high seas i'm going to own this piece of antarctica you can't if you're paying someone to do so you've just lost your money um how far are we away from you get putting your stuff and going on a shuttle and going to live on the moon is a different question that may well happen in our lifetime. Um, I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and I have no doubt it's going to happen in her lifetime, no question in my mind at all. Um, But she won't be able to own any of the moon and nor will any country that is um, sponsoring or setting up a human settlement there or even a company that is. No one can own the moon. Um, What is going to happen is when we set up – Human habitation, just as just as happens right now under space law, any object in space, including the internet, including a space station, I should say, falls under the jurisdiction of the the country where it was launched from or where that company is registered. So the International Space Station actually has a set of modules. You have the US module that falls under US jurisdiction. You have the Japanese uh, model that falls under Japanese jurisdiction. You have the, um, uh, the Canadian arm, the robotic arm is the one piece that falls under Canadian jurisdiction. And then you have the European Space Agency, which means that it falls under um, a European law, not a, not a national jurisdiction. Um, and the Russian module, of course. So when you pass from the US module into the Russian module, it's kind of like passing over a border and you fall under the laws of that country. I suspect we're going to see the same thing when we have a human habitation either in this space station around the the moon um, and or human habitation on the moon is we're going to have modules that are going to fall under the jurisdiction of the country that... um, that has authorised it, that has all the licensing and permits in place, all the companies that have set it up are registered in those countries because the moon is still close enough that, um, and the time span we're talking about is still short enough that it's going to fall under existing space law and that's how it works today. Mars is going to cause us a bunch of different legal challenges because of the distance. Um, As soon as Martians or people on Mars or even in a space station orbiting Mars, are able to be self-sufficient and don't require resources from the moon or Earth, be that money or resources to live from, they have absolutely no reason why they would want to submit to terrestrial laws. Why would they have to? So they're going to set up their own governance. That's going to happen, no question. You know, Elon Musk has tried this out already. He said, if you want to be part of the next project, you have to sign an agreement that says you agree that you fall under um, uh, laws that will be written by SpaceX and Martian laws and you do not fall under terrestrial Earth laws. I mean, that's laughable right now because no activity in space can take place without being... Uh, authorized and supervised by a country's jurisdiction and you can't contract yourself out of a country's law you and i can't sign a contract saying we hereby declare ourselves not bound by australian law you can't do that Um, so it's a bit laughable that he's done that now but if and when if it's not him whoever gets to mars and sets up a human establishment um Uh, they will set up their own laws and they will say, we don't care anymore about your terrestrial laws. But we're several decades away from that. Uh, You know, they're talking about in the next 20 years, I don't think we're going to be living on Mars in the next 20 years. We're decades away from that.
0: Many thanks to Cassandra Steer and Brad Tucker from the Australian National University. If you've got any other questions that you'd like to know about space law, then you can send them across to us and we'll try and get them answered in a future episode of the show. You can send your emails to moonshot at lawson.media. You can also send us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just search for at moonshotpod. Moonshot is a production of Lawson Media and is hosted by me, Christopher Lawson, and also Andrew Moon. Our artwork is by the talented Andrew Millist, and our music is from the incredible Breakmaster Cylinder. If you love what we do on the show, then consider becoming a member of our Patreon. You can head across to patreon.com slash moonshot, and there's a bunch of membership tiers with different perks. That's all for this episode of Moonshot. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Thanks for listening.